Welcome to IAQ Radio, the voice of the indoor air quality industry. Yes, the rules have changed. The rules have changed. Good day wherever you're listening from, and welcome to Indoor Air Quality Radio, IAQ Radio, for Friday, April 24th, 2009. This week, episode 122 comes to you from Studio B in beautiful Coriopolis, Pennsylvania. My name is Joe Hughes, or Radio Joe, and here with me in the studio is the wingman, Chris Boisel at the controls. <coughs> He's dying over there. <laughs> Come on, Chris. <laughs> And my co-host, the Z-Man, Cliff Slotnick. Good afternoon, Joe. Always a pleasure. Good day, Cliff. We are all back in the studio, including Environmental Annie. Hello, Annie. Hello, Joe. Good afternoon. And our technical director, Dr. Dietrich Wow, will be joining us as well. Got a great show today. Today's segments include the microband trivia question. We've got Mr. Stephen Ashkin of the Ashkin Group. We'll have a halftime segment, just a quick one this week. Then we'll come back to our interview with Steve. And, of course, we'll finish with the roundup, as always. We've been updating and adding a blog to the IAQ Radio website every week after the show. Check it out at iaqradio.com. Before we get started, let's thank our sponsors. Our newest advertiser is Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions. Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions is the leader in portable, mobile, PC-based indoor environmental monitors and reporting software. Check them out at wolfsensing.com. Legends Environmental Insurance Services, the experts in insurance for environmental consultants and contractors for over 20 years. Learn about them at legends-enviro.com. Microband Systems, the microbial management company at microbandsystems.com. Indoor Environment Connections, now available online. It's the newspaper for the IEQ industry. Subscriptions and advertising information available at ieconnections.com. Dry Ease Products, providing equipment for drying water-damaged homes and buildings. Dry Ease is first in drying solutions at dri-eaz.com. John Don Products, a restoration abatement contractor shop at jondon.com. All right, please thank those sponsors for us. They help uh, bring the show to you here every week. To contact the show, you can call 724-444-7444. Our show ID is 1547. You can also download the show at the iaqradio.com site, follow the link that says go to the show, or you can get it from iTunes. And don't forget, we have available those IICRC continuing education credits and IAQ council renewal credits. You have to email me and request a quiz. My email is on the website, but it's joe.hughes at iaqtraining.com. We also love to hear from you and uh, get suggestions, etc., comments on the show. You can email me or... Cliff Zlotnick at unsmoke.com. Last but not least, please visit the IAQ Training Institute website for the most current dates for the training you trust at 
iaqtraining.com. I'm going to turn it over to the Z-Man for this week's microband trivia question. Thanks, Joe. Sorry to report, we had no correct answers to last week's microvan trivia question. You'll win a cool prize by outcompeting IQ radio listeners and being the first person to correctly answer the microvan trivia question. Submitting your answer, submitting your answer is very easy. Simply email it to cliffzlotnickatunsmoke.com. This week's trivia question is multiple choice. When is the real Earth Day? A in March, B in April. C in June, or D, all of the above. As last week's trivia question hasn't been answered, and it's also on environmental issues, let's put that one into play again as well. According to a poll taken by the Environmental Defense Fund, what book has most influenced environmental thinking? Over to you, Joe. All right, Cliff, very good. I think that's, we only have one outstanding question out of 122. Excellent. Uh, Some of our trivia folks have to check in. All right, let's get started. Today's guest is uh, Mr. Stephen Ashkin of the Ashkin Group. Uh, it's our pleasure to bring Steve to the group. He's been a leader in the glean- green cleaning movement since long before it was recognized as a movement. His efforts in pioneering many concepts that are now taken for granted has led to his being the thought of as the father of green cleaning. Steve's passion and commitment to the green movement has resulted in his founding four organizations. He's the president of the Ashkin Group, a consulting firm working to transform the cleaning industry, executive director of the Green Cleaning Network, a nonprofit educational organization for building owners and facility managers, co-founder of the Green Cleaning University, providing educational programs on green cleaning and sustainability, and his newest venture is Sustainability Dashboard Tools, LLC, which is developing web-based tools to help organizations measure and report their sustainability efforts. In addition, Steve is co-author of four books, including Green Cleaning for Dummies from Wiley Publishing and The Business of Green Cleaning, published by the International Facility Management Association Foundation. He's a frequent speaker at major industry events and has published or been cited in over 300 magazine and newspaper articles. Finally, his long list of activities and awards includes the serving on the U.S. Green Building Council's committee that wrote the LEED Lead for Existing Buildings Operations and Maintenance Rating System, being honored as the Excellence Award winner from the U.S. EPA for his work to protect children from environmental threats, and he was selected by Environmental Review as one of the 50 most influential people in the indoor environment. Good afternoon, Steve, and welcome to IAQ Radio. Hang on for the right. Oh, there you go. I got a little music for you. And green can be cool and friendly like. And green can be big like an ocean. Or important like a mountain. Or tall like a tree. It's not I guess it's getting a little easier being green these days. Hello, Steve. Welcome to IAQ Radio. Well, it's my pleasure to be here, and I have to admit I've never quite been introduced 
with um, Kermit singing to me, so <laughs> thank you very much. I'm very flattered. Okay, good. Um, and I also have to say I really am flattered to be your guest, uh, especially considering that this is celebrated as Earth Week. So thank you very much to, for having me today. Perfect. Uh, our pleasure. And I'm, I'm sure you have some idea of the trivia quest, but guests, the, the trivia <laughs> question, guests are not eligible for the prize. I'm sorry. We've had a few answer them in the past. Let's uh, let's get started here, Steve. How long has has, has your company, the, the current one, the Ashkin Group, actually been uh, in place? Well, I founded my consulting firm in 2001, but I've actually been working in the cleaning industry since '81, and been working on the issue of green cleaning since 1990. So, in some respects, after spending a lot of time making a lot of money for my employers. I decided it was time to go out on my own and started my own practice in 2001. Cliff was telling me uh, before the show you have an interesting kind of an interesting background as with respect to who your former employers were. Can you tell us a little bit about that? I think he just made that up. <laughs> I don't know. He told me. Uh, that well, all, all kidding aside, um, you know, I've worked for a number of major leading companies in the cleaning industry, both on the consumer and commercial side. Um, when I first started getting interested in the issue of green cleaning and actually started going to the Indoor Environment Connections Conference and becoming familiar with, you know, indoor air quality related issues. So back in the early 90s, I was a division vice president for a commercial cleaning product manufacturer called Rochester Midland. And um, then after spending 10 years there, I went to serve as director of product development for a consumer products company called Seventh Generation, which is a leading brand of green household products, primarily sold through the natural foods channel. So if you shop at a Whole Foods or a Wild Oats or a Trader Joe's, those kind of guys, you'll know who Seventh Generation is. But it's sort of been an interesting opportunity to work on both the commercial and consumer side and um, certainly um, the world, according to Kermit and the rest of the green folks, has certainly changed over those years. Sure has. Uh, sure has. I'll bet. I, I suspect you're kind of busy right now, Steve, with the push for green products at this point. Are you uh, finding yourself kind of stretched? You know, as I mentioned, I started working on this issue in 1990, and that was before people even thought it was stupid. That was at the point where they just ignored the issue altogether. <laughs> you know, and then we went from being ignored to being ridiculed and joked and laughed at to, of course, today where green really has become such a significant um, area within the marketplace. So, yeah, we are, we are busier than ever. Um, but at the same time, I think all of your listeners will probably agree that the economy is just terrible. So a lot of companies and people who use our services, you know, they're really struggling. But the only reason that I mention that is because within my industry, and I'm talking primarily about the commercial cleaning industry, the one bright spot is green cleaning. So we are having more demand today than we've ever had before because companies recognize that they got to keep growing. they got to find whatever opportunities are out there, and the only one they're seeing these days is green. So, yeah, we are busier than we have ever been, and this is finally our opportunity to really make a difference. 
Steve, do you know where the term green originated and who might have originated it? You know, I have to admit I'm a little bit embarrassed by that question because I'm really not sure. I mean, I can talk specifically about how it came about in the commercial cleaning industry, but, you know, if that was a loaded question and you know the answer, I'd be curious. Or if you're specifically asking about the cleaning industry, we, I'm happy to get into detail about that. No, no, it's not a loaded question. I didn't, I didn't know the answer. And, you know, one of the funny things and, and the reasons that I asked it is I was writing an article recently, and um, I had to discuss green issues within the article, and I looked up the, the word green. And actually, you know, the one that talked about the environmental was, I think, like the 10th, number 10 in the definition. And there were some that were above it, you know, unripened, naive, and, and all these other things were more popular definitions. So I just wondered where it came from. And, but, no, we'd, we'd love you to tell us, you know, what you know about it in the, in the uh, cleaning industry. Well, well, first of all, I, I really did think it was a loaded question because when I did my homework on you guys, I thought you knew everything. <laughs> Not really. No, you were, you were really wrong there. <laughs> That's D why we're D here. Dieter might know. Though. Yeah, you know Dieter may know. We'll check with him at halftime. But, yeah. no, we have no idea. Right. Um, anyway, maybe some of your listeners might know, and they can send that in as well. Absolutely. But, you know, in the early part of the literally 1990, 1991, that time period, um, this green issue really wasn't an issue at all. And I'm talking specifically about the, the cleaning industry. And I remember very clearly sitting with my staff and trying to figure out, well, what are we going to call this thing? And, you know, we struggled with stuff because, you know, green has been around for a long time. And as you know, there's a political party, the, the, the Green Party. And, you know, there's baggage with green. And, you know, that word has been out there and thrown around. And there's a lot of misuse and so forth and so on. And we thought about, you know, we should call this something else. We should call it healthy cleaning or, you know, we should call it, you know, sustain. Actually, I, I, I was going to use the word sustainable, but I'd be lying to you because in 1990 we certainly weren't using that word yet. But finally, we decided that green would be a good term, especially in, after 1993 when the U.S. Green Building Council was launched. And then we sort of had this, this inspiration that, you know, this really was going to become something. And especially if we were using the marketplace to drive, you know, these issues as opposed to government regulations, that if we could really get organizations like the U.S. Green Building Council and working with building owners and facility managers, if we could really sort of hook our, our wagon to that horse, that that's how we could drive the transformation of our industry. So we just sort of decided that we would call it green and began promoting it and talking about it and trying to continually define it and tying into some presidential executive orders that were coming out at the time. And, um, you know, I guess it's sort of stuck. Yes, it has. Annie? Yeah, Steve, was there a profound uh, event that occurred that got you interested in green cleaning? Um, you know, there's actually sort of a few things that helped me do it. And one of them is, in some respects, a little bit embarrassing because, you know, I was a division vice president for a chemical company, and, you know, any of us who are working for our employers 
the reason that we're really employed is to help return a good, I guess, return on investment for the stockholders of the company. Mm -hmm. I mean, let's be realistic. That's why we have our jobs. Sure. So in my capacity as a division vice president for this company, the real reason we started really focusing on this issue was because we saw, saw it as an opportunity to create unique value in the marketplace because none of our competitors were talking about these issues. So part of it really was from a very pragmatic business perspective to differentiate ourselves and have a unique position in the marketplace. So that's sort of on the business professional side. On the personal side, uh, before I went back into the chemical industry in 81, I did a church mission for six years. And, you know, I, I, and I, and I work in an industry that employs 4.2 million janitors. And if you've ever been a janitor, literally, and I'm sure there's some of your listeners on the phone who, have, who may be janitors today or have spent time throughout their career doing that, they'll recognize how incredibly difficult that job is. So part of what I also felt in the early days was not only was this an opportunity for me to do my job, but also it reflected my personal values where we really can make a difference in the lives of these people by using products that would increase the margin of safety and protect their health. So it was really sort of the, those two things coming together that helped me realize that, that this was my passion and my calling and something that, frankly, I wanted to devote my life to. Steve, there, I'm curious, are there like categories, you know, everything seems to be lumped under green cleaning products. There's a lot of different types of cleaning products. You know, you've got detergents, disinfectants, etc. Are there different categories of green cleaning products? You know, that's a great question, and I think the answer to that is yes and no. And the reason I answer it like that is it all has to do with what the definition of green really is. So certainly there are lots of different product categories, floor finishes and cleaners and carpet care products, and, and you know, it's not just chemicals, so we're looking at other things involved with the cleaning processes, so the equipment and the tools and on and on and on. So on the one hand, those categories exist. But the real issue is the purpose of green or is really greening. It's our effort to reduce the health and environmental impacts compared to traditional products. So green is a process that can be applied to literally any product that is currently being used in a building because we want to look at what we're currently doing and is there a way to make it better. And in this case, we define better as being reducing health and environmental impacts. And in addition to the products, we apply greening to the processes themselves because typically, especially in the cleaning industry, we can't separate the product from the process. So I don't know if that really answers your question, but um, you know, that's sort of how we really look at it. It, it doesn't, it doesn't, I guess. It does, um, and I, I think you actually kind of went into the next one, which was what is, um, what is the definition of a green cleaning product. So I think you did a, a good job of helping us understand that a little bit better. But I, I just get confused. I guess uh, you mentioned, like, floor care products and so on and so forth. Um, I guess I just get confused on, you know, what is green and how do we determine that and whether we have even are there green floor care products are there green green um you know all these different categories of products detergents etc but let's let's move on to another term you mentioned earlier what what is green washing well you know green washing is somewhat of an intentional 
or maybe even unintentional attempt by a service provider or a manufacturer to promote their product or service using green concepts or green marketing, whatever, when those benefits really don't exist. So it's, it's, it's an intentional or even unintentional, and I think that's also an important word. It's not just when they do it. Sometimes, forgive me for saying this, but sometimes we're just, we're just uninformed or we're, we do dumb things. But, the, but greenwashing is when, nonetheless, when we do things that are trying to promote a product or service using these green concepts, whether misleading or they're false. You know, the, the, the origin of the term, and I had no idea where it came from, and I was doing some research on another matter, and, and I stumbled upon, and perhaps you can either correct this if it's incorrect or validate it if it's correct, but why it was called greenwashing was it referred to when you go to a hotel or a motel and they tell you to reuse the towels and that you know it's good for the environment and it saves soap and it saves water and and so on and so forth and apparently the real reason that they were doing it wasn't to uh, save the environment and so on and so forth it was to save money because there's a significant cost in laundering this stuff and there was actually a person who coined the term I, I don't remember what his name was but that's what I heard anyway Steve so you know, and, and that I, I certainly won't argue the case, and I always struggle when I see those little cards in hotels as well. But I think the fact of the matter is, if we really do reuse towels and if we do, you know, use less water, it really does have environmental benefits. I think the whole movement would be better served if organizations were a little bit more gen genuine and also say, you know, this is a way for us to keep our costs down and to keep your rates down. So it, it doesn't take away from the, be the environmental benefits of doing those things. I just think we just, you know, have to be careful that it doesn't play into those people who really deny all of this stuff or don't think it's important so that we come across being genuine. Yeah, I guess, you know, I, I try to reuse my towel. I didn't know that it was I, – and I, I guess there's nothing wrong with helping the hotel save a little money either because I, hopefully they'll pass it on to me. We'll see. Well, but, then, I, you know, I think the bottom line is I'd like a choice, okay? I'd like a choice if, uh, if I want to decide that I don't want my towel laundered, I want a discount, okay? If, if they have to launder the towel, so – Okay. Then uh, you know you should have a choice. You save two bucks or something like that, or fifty cents or whatever. You know, share the wealth. I think. Okay. It's reasonable. But I think Annie's Annie? got the next one. I have a question for you, Steve. Would you agree or disagree with the observation that the vast majority of the ecological impact cleaning products have on the environment is related to the packaging and not necessarily the ingredient? Um. True or false question, huh? Yeah. <laughs> well, 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 that makes it a little bit hard for me because on the one hand, Annie, you're absolutely right. There's enormous environmental benefits by looking at packaging. There's also enormous benefits by looking at converting products that typically use hot water to using warm or cold water, like dishwashing products or laundry products. Huge environmental savings you know, due to eliminating the energy that's used to just heat the water. So, it, you know, you really do point out a lot of, lot of stuff. And, you know, but one of the things I do want to say is the chemicals themselves are important. And so here's an interesting little factoid to you. Uh, did you know 
that the commercial and institutional cleaning industry in the U.S. consumes 6.2 billion pounds of cleaning products, cleaning and maintenance products, to clean and maintain commercial and institutional buildings every year. I did not and, know that. See, and the reason I like throwing that out there is, individually, all your listeners, they don't use billions of pounds of stuff. But collectively, it really does make a difference. It's the same thing like when we turn the light switch off. I mean, really, what difference does it make on a global scale if one person turns the light switch off for an hour but the, or powers his computer down for an hour or adjusts the thermostat? One person themselves really doesn't do that much, but collectively, it really does make a difference. So while certainly packaging is important and the temperature that it performs, that's important. All these things are important. It really does add up. And I really don't want to dismiss any single point that we need to do that, you know, uh, collectively really can make a difference. You know, it's funny. I was driving home from a long trip last night, and I stopped to grab a bite to eat at a little Sheets. It's a kind of a gasoline place, 7-Eleven yeah. mm-hmm. kind of deal. And I'm looking around at all these things that you can eat, and they all had this packaging on them. And then I saw the bananas and the apples, and they were just laying out in the open. And I thought to myself, wow, that that really makes a lot of sense. But then I thought, well, I wonder why, like, the Department of Health or somebody doesn't get upset by that. You know, it was a kind of led me to think about this whole process of how we package things and how much money and time we put into packaging things. What types of things do you do with respect to packaging or do you recommend with respect to packaging to help with that issue, Steve? Well, you know, in the cleaning industry, especially in the commercial and consumer space, I guess I should say, the big issue is clearly to reduce packaging. Uh, You see, for example, retailers such as Walmart really pushing their suppliers to make extra concentrated products because certainly if you make it a 2X product or a 4X product, we're significantly reducing the amount of plastic bottles and the shipping cartons and even the number of, you know, miles, you know, the truckloads of stuff that's being moved, the recycling end of it after these things are being thrown away. So I think that consumers should definitely have a preference for looking at concentrated products because of the packaging impact. That's something easy for them to do. Of course, the trick with all of that is if you buy a product that's twice as concentrated, and, what, and you know, I, I believe that your program is listened to a lot of IAQ professionals, and the same thing applies for them. You know, if they're using a disinfectant and they go to one from – you know, it's 1 to 64, they go to 1 to 128 or 1 to 256, whatever, more and more concentrated product. So it's good from a packaging and environmental side, but only if the users of the products are diluting them and using them properly. Yeah, and that's a big Otherwise, problem. we're actually significantly contributing to environmental problems and not solving them. Not only that, the misuse causes more headaches, I think, for the manufacturers in, in some cases than, than anything else. Um, all right, let's... let's uh, Go. I want to ask a question before halftime here. It's uh, on the term natural. Okay, people use this term natural. Would you would you agree the term natural is a little disingenuous when used in conjunction with cleaning products? Uh, aren't all soaps and surfactants used to manufacture detergents synthetically made? Well, I have to confess, I really struggle with the word natural myself. 
you know, I don't really know what it means. And, you know, the Federal Trade Commission is really trying to figure out what that means so companies can use it sort of honestly. But, you know, we know that there are a lot of natural products that are bad for human health. We know that. Um, we know things like lead, and we know spores, we know, you know, arsenic, we know poison ivy, I mean, on and on and on. We know just because something is natural, it does not make it good. And one of the things that we always teach in our industry is, again, back to our early definition of green, which is really uh, the product has to simultaneously reduce impact on both health and the environment. So we always say, you know, what good would a product, a natural product be if the user got cancer? So you're, you're, you know, just like you, I do struggle with the use of that term. I think we have to just be really smart and make sure as consumers, whether we're talking, you know, commercial consumers or household consumers, we're asking the right questions and make sure that the products really are doing what we expect them to do. I think we have time for one more before halftime because I'm really curious about this one. Um, this is uh, a question that I think Cliff put together, and we had a guest on, I think it was last week, um, right. who's a consultant for for people who are trying to get uh, antimicrobials approved through the FIFRA program, and he was very interesting. What can you tell us about EPA's program on green disinfectants? Uh, is there going to be any kind of special green um, dispensation for green disinfectants or other green cleaners? Well, d just out of curious, do you remember which, who you had on your show last week? Oh, yeah, Elliot Harrison from, from the firm of Lewis and Harrison. Oh, okay. Well, um, yeah, I, I'm sorry that I missed it. I'm sure it would have been quite interesting. But currently, U.S. EPA is looking at, for the first time, allowing manufacturers and marketers of FIFRA registered products, and I'm sure your listeners know that, you know, FIFRA, the Federal Insecticide, Fungicide, Rodenticide Act, so any disinfectant, sanitizer, whatever, um, for the first time will be allowed to at least consider making claims, uh, environmental claims. And actually, I serve on the EPA work group that's actually doing that. Uh, we actually should know next week what EPA is planning on doing. That's how close we are to getting a final decision from them. But the issue is, and the way it's shaping up, is it appears, it appears that EPA is going to allow manufacturers to work with EPA's Design for the Environment program to promote um, sort of an eco-labeled product. Dana, and I've been very careful not to use the word safer because EPA doesn't like that. EPA believes that all their products are safe if used according to directions. Mm -hmm. But to allow working with the EPA's design for the environment to make it easier for purchasers to identify these greener products. At the same time, they're looking at a parallel track that will allow manufacturers to make what's called factual claims. So the manufacturer can now put on the bottle that the product's biodegradable or can put on the bottle that its package is made with 50% post-consumer re recycled content. So they're, they're finally looking at allowing those kind of things to happen. Uh, EPA now clearly recognizes that FIFRA does not prohibit them to do that, and they're looking at doing a pilot program that I think will start rolling out um, over the next few months. There's one thing that I heard you say, and I just wanted to 
just clarify it or, or get you to repeat it. I thought I heard you say that the EPA thinks that all these products are safe when used as directed. Did you say that? I did. Okay. I thought you did. That's why I wanted to hear it again. All right. All right. Thank you. You, but, know, uh, you know, EPA's role in terms of protecting public health, they really take that stuff really seriously. They feel that that's their mandate. So they're really concerned about if we say a product's green, then it may lead to misuse of products. Right? I mean, if they're gotcha. safe, does that mean you can drink it? Or you can right. use it for an application that it wasn't intended for? So they're very careful and concerned about making sure that these things are done correctly, but at the same time recognizing that there is demand in the marketplace because green is everywhere. So how do they help look at whether it's, you know, the inerts in the product or the pH or, you know, some other characteristics to help consumers identify products if they're looking for something that is greener. Mm -hmm. Excellent. Okay, okay, Steve, we may, may follow up on that after halftime. Yeah, please? no, I was just going to just remind Steve, please stay on the line. What's going to happen is we, we do a little halftime segment for a couple of minutes. We bring in Dr. Dieter, and uh, Joe's got an update on some interesting stuff that's going on in the IAQ field. So just hang on. We'll be right back. All right, before we uh, start with uh, Dr. Dieter, I think first we'd like to thank our sponsors. Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions is the leader in portable mobile, PC-based indoor environmental monitors and reporting software. Check them out at wolfsensing.com. Legends Environmental Insurance Services, the experts in insurance for environmental consultants and contractors for over 20 years. Learn more about them at legends-enviro.com. Microband Systems, the microbial management company at microbandsystems.com. Indoor Environment Connections, now available online. The newspaper for the IEQ industry. Subscriptions and advertising information available at ieconnections.com. Dry Ease Products, providing equipment for drying water-damaged homes and buildings. Dry Ease is first in drying solutions at dryease-eaz.com. John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractor shop at jondon.com. All right. Please thank those sponsors for us and let them know you heard about them on IAQ Radio. Let's bring Dr. Dietrich Wow in here, our technical director, see if he's on the line. Hello, Dieter. Oh. Yeah, hi there. Of course, I have a couple of comments. All right, Dieter. I think I may give somebody a hint since I'm not eligible to win the trivia question. I think I have the book that Cliff was referring to on my bookshelf, and let's give the listeners a hint. I think the author was female. Uh, I'm it, pretty sure I have that. <laughs> uh, incorrect, actually. Oh, okay. uh, incorrect. Okay, well, wrong. <laughs> okay, I just tried to mislead them. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, we had someone submit that answer, and that was incorrect. If you take the hint, we told you where to go. Uh, I was surprised. There's actually another book. Uh, that was dramatically uh, considered more influential by the group. Wow. Interesting. Dieter? Uh, yeah, I think, I do seem to remember that Jacques Cousteau, remember the guy who was diving and stuff like that? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I think he started that green thing at probably the same time. Remember Green Peace? Yes. Yep. Uh, those were the guys against whaling, and it, they, they also touched on environmental issues. So that may have been a start of using green, 
and the colors of I have a sweatshirt upstairs, an ancient one from Jacques Cousteau, and that one is white with green writing on it and a green logo on it. So that may be it. We're going to check uh, it on out. On the other hand, I think the garbage that we are producing in this world, I think it is absolutely obnoxious. And yeah, I, Joe knows that one. I grew up in Germany, and I grew up with, with empty bottles, and we had a shopping bag. I still have one downstairs from China. And I was so glad to hear in San Francisco, finally, they banned these Sam plastic bags that are hanging in cactuses and fences all over the place. And in Germany, they started that uh, originally with, a, I think it was something like a nickel per bag, and nobody paid attention. Then it was 10 cents a bag, and then they went to 25 cents a bag, and all of a sudden, everybody brought their own shopping bags into which you put the stuff. Hmm. And I see these kids over there. You know, I buy a bottle of Clorox. The guy puts it in a plastic bag. And I said, look, let's save the plastic tree. I don't want that thing. <laughs> I can carry that very nicely home myself. Very good, Dieter. And what else do I have? No, I think, I think we have to all sit back and <coughs> take, <coughs> take a good look of where we are and where we want to be as far as the environment is concerned. I mean, it's, it's, uh, it is getting ridiculous of the stuff uh, that we put into um, uh, uh, sanitary, so-called sanitary landfills and so on. Which brings me up, I have behind me in two plastic bags approximately two $3,000 worth of old NICAD batteries, and I don't want to throw them in the garbage, and I don't really know where to get rid of them. Hmm. In the old days when I was at Pitt, we had a, a, a system over there, and I just put them over there, and somebody took care of it, hazardous materials. Now I'm sitting on, on these batteries over here. Like I said, I don't, I don't think that nickel and cadmium belongs into a sanitary landfill. But maybe we, we ought to make people more aware of, of recycling centers and make them available. Not, I don't want to drive 50 miles. <laughs> that doesn't make sense either. I understand. Very good, Dieter. Any any questions that you wanted to bring up, or we want to bring uh, you back for? No, not not really. Let's bring you in maybe for the roundup. Ask, yeah, maybe we ask the British to change their race cars from British green to a light green or something. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent, Dieter. Well, we'll bring you back for uh, the roundup at the end of the show. I, I will be here, and I probably have another comment or a question. Excellent. Thank you, Thank you Dr. Dieter. Okay, I just have a quick announcement. We're going to get back to uh, Steve Ashkin here on the uh, green cleaning issue. I just uh, I put it out with the announcement here this week, but uh, another state has passed a law that will require licensing for mold inspectors and mold remediators. Um, one of our previous guests won't won't like to hear that. Ed Light well, didn't seem too happy about right. that, but uh, the state, the Commonwealth, I should say, of Virginia just uh, passed this at the end of last month. And uh, it will require that people who perform inspections for mold and do mold remediation in the Commonwealth have some type of licensing. Of course, once the law is passed, we still have a long way to go before we have the final regulation. And that will be through one of the uh, bureaus that uh, issue licenses for contractors in general. And this has been an interesting subject. Uh, sometimes it's been, we've got five now states that 
do or will regulate these people in some way or require licensing. One, uh, Texas is through the Department of Health, and uh, Louisiana, Florida, Maryland, and now Virginia all appear to be doing it through their contractor licensing board, essentially. So I thought I'd bring that up for the listeners this week, Cliff. Let's go back to the second half of the show and bring Steve Ashkin back in. Okay, uh, Steve, have you heard about this recent Canadian hospital study which found that green cleaning products and disinfectant products weren't getting the job done? Could you comment on that? Well, now you're starting to make trouble, aren't you? If I can. <laughs> but yeah, you're supposed to laugh a little bit. I did, I did. chance of, of being funny. Um, you know, frankly, I've seen a number of these kind of studies, and there was a similar one that was uh, released reasonably recently from the University of Massachusetts at Lowell. And generally, when I really start looking at the studies, and, of course, understanding my bias, having spent my career in the industry, uh, my general sense is the products actually work. I mean, come on. Uh, it's not rocket science to figure out how to make a glass cleaner that cleans glass. So what we usually find is the problem itself generally, and, and I'll sort of get into detail a little bit, is, is generally not the product, but actually the process by which it's being used. So, so I'm certainly not going to say that they didn't have problems in their hospital, but my suspicion is it probably had to do with other things like lack of hand washing or you know, lack of appropriate dwell time or lack of using the appropriate product or so forth and so on, and not technically that green products don't work. Now, with having said all of that, I will concede the point that there are some soils and some organisms that really are particularly challenging. You know, if you're trying to get rid of certain types of spores, you know, so far, you know, you, we still need very aggressive compounds to be able to do it, whether we're using uh, sodium hypochlorite or something else. So there certainly are some, some soils, and I'm just going to use that as the broad term, that really are going to use very aggressive and very traditional products to get rid of them, and we don't have greener um, solutions to them at this point. So anyway, that's a long way of saying that um, my general sense is the products, it, it probably wasn't a product issue per se, but more of a process-related one, and they probably would have had that same problem regardless of what kind of products they were using. That's a fair observation. Yeah. Uh, Steve, I've... Last week we talked about the registration process a little bit and some of the data that needs to be produced. And I'm, you know, I'm totally clueless on this, so if you could clue me in a little bit, I'd really appreciate it. Um, are there efficacy studies and studies similar to what you know, traditional disinfectants have to do um, that have been produced and have been submitted to EPA for some of these green cleaning products? Well, if you'll allow me, I want to answer that question in two ways. One is, I'm going to do a broad comment, which is I want to make sure that all of your listeners really appreciate that green cleaning is not just about the chemicals. So, you know, there are a lot of products used to keep your buildings clean and safe and healthy, 
you know, from the chemicals and the, the vacuum cleaners and entryway mats as a pollution prevention strategy and the toilet paper and on and on and on. So I, I hope you'll you know, indulge me and at least let me really make that point that it's not just about chemicals. I'm glad you did. That's a great point. Beyond that, though, your question is really an important one. And, the, you know, the cleaning industry, this is not like the pharmaceutical industry where manufacturers have to prove efficacy before they can market a product. In my industry, basically, if you make it and someone will buy it and you're not violating any laws, you can sell it. And there's no government agency, there's no consumer protection organization that checks the efficacy of a product and or the claims, frankly, that people are making. So there is none of that. The only product category where that is true is disinfectants and sanitizers. It's the only one where EPA requires efficacy data to be submitted to EPA before the product can be allowed for sale. Otherwise, anything else, you know, it's the Wild West out there and the consumer beware. You know, I just have so. one, one minor thing that I'd like to add to that. The thing that drives me crazy is you, know, you go into the health food store, and I do because there are certain products that, that I buy there, and I look at the labels on various cleaning products, shampoos, cosmetics, and so on and so forth, and it says not animal tested. And I know why they're not animal tested. Uh, you know, they're not animal tested because these people don't want to spend the money to have them animal tested, and animal testing is not required for their category, as it is required for FIFRA. So that's the one logo that I see that it just drives me crazy. Steve, well, me, well, uh, and, go ahead. And if I, if I can add to that, there's actually another reason why some of these companies do that. And part of it is because they don't want to get into a war with the folks from PETA. Yeah, yeah. And that's a very real issue. And and you know, and sometimes that, especially in the category or to who the consumer that they're selling to, that's a very important issue. So it's not even just that they're not willing to spend the money. It's just you know, sort of the quote politics unquote of the issue is, is why they don't want to do that. Well, one good thing, too, I mean, in, in fairness to animals and animal testing is now there's a synthetic membrane, actually, that you can buy that apparently parallels, you know, human tissue very well. And, you know, you put the product on there and it takes a certain amount of time to eat through this membrane. And, uh, you know, that's not cheap, but um, it is available now. But I don't know that FIFRA has accepted it, but I think cosmetic industry has accepted it. Steve, since you brought this point up, and I, I think it's a great um, a great point, we've been talking more about, you know, cleaning products as opposed to the cleaning process, and, you know, I, I didn't even think of it until you brought it up, to be honest with you, and I'm curious, if you, you know, if you were king for a day and you had two or three things that you could change with respect to the cleaning process in, you know, institutional, commercial buildings, et cetera, what would the most important two or three things be that you would have to have changed? Well, if I was king for the day, you know, one of the things that I really want to first begin to understand is what does it really mean to be clean? 
Okay. You know, it's really a shame that I, I really can't go into a building except do a visual inspection and decide is that the appropriate amount of cleaning that's done in a building. So if I was looking for the day, the first thing I would do is really invest heavily in research. You know, if we look at our healthcare facilities, what do they say every year? Somewhere between 70 and 100,000 people die from hospital-acquired infections, and a third of that is related to sort of sanitation-related issues. So at what point are we willing to really study this issue and figure out how much cleaning should be done and how much, therefore, we should be spending on cleaning? And my general sense is if we really studied it, we'd probably be cleaning twice as much as we are now. You know, so if I, was, if I was king for the day, that's one of the things that I would do, is I would make sure that we really do clean our buildings and make them actually healthy, and that we make sure people are trained properly, that there's professional licensing required in our industry, and that we really took cleaning seriously, because I don't think as a country we do. I think, candidly, as a country, we think if someone's a janitor, it's because they're stupid or because they have no other options. And I think we've really diminished this entire industry, and as a result, people are literally dying because of a lack of sanitation and a lack of resources that are put into keeping their buildings safe and healthy. Yeah, I think it's a great comment. We've actually done a show on, uh, do you know Bill Griffin, I suspect? Of course, he's yeah, a friend of mine. Yeah, uh, we've actually done a show uh, with Bill, and... Uh, I've known Bill for a long time as well, so we had him on to kind of, uh, you know, talk about that. You know, one of the big health care issues is, is doctors' ties, uh, that they very rarely get them cleaned, and there have been studies that they have all sorts of nasty stuff on doctors' ties. Interesting. So the, the first thing would be to do more cleaning, okay, and to have research on what is clean and what is cleaning and what types of cleaning work. In your experience in consulting with companies, what in your experience has been the one or two single biggest things that these these uh, buildings could do, uh, you know, other than, of course, you know, adding more money and spending more money and, and training people, et cetera, what other process type things would you say are the most important? Well, there's a, there's a few that are important. From the building's perspective, I, I highly would encourage all buildings to re really look at how soils enter their buildings. And of course, in the IEQ industry, we sort of understand proper filtration, those kind of things. But from the cleaning industry's perspective, we sort of say 80 to 90 percent of all soil in a building gets tracked in through the front doors. And I'd encourage all buildings to really look at their entryways, their entry matting systems, and really make sure that they're capturing the soils before they get into the buildings and really focus their cleaning efforts in the entryways. So stop it before it starts. Absolutely. Excellent. Another thing that I would highly recommend, and this, this will sort of sound uh, very, very elementary, is encourage good hand washing, hand hygiene. You know, if we were, you know, everyone knows that we should wash our hands. It's amazing how few people really do. But it's one of the greatest sources of the transmission of, of illness, of disease, is through hand contact. And we spend so much time, and especially in your industry, focusing on air quality issues because we know how important inhal you know, inhalation as a route of exposure is. But we don't spend enough time thinking about other routes of exposures. And again, one of those, one of those very 
easy opportunities is for organizations to encourage hand washing um, and when water isn't available, for example, to put a uh, waterless hand sanitizer by the elevators. So when people are waiting in the elevator lobby for their elevator, they can sanitize their hands or to put it at the front of the food, the cafeteria line. So when they're picking up their food service tray, they can sanitize their hands. Or when they drop their tray off at the end after they've eaten, they can again sanitize their hands. Or during flu season or whatever, to make these products available so that people will wash their hands and take care of themselves and it would not only reduce illness but I believe if people are feeling better they're they're going to be more productive and more successful for their organizations yeah it's interesting you kind of read the mind of I don't know if you can see the comments that come in we have a listener uh, I want to say hello to John down in Florida who had commented that uh, I, I can't see the first part of it but anyway um, we had talked about in one of the classes that when you clean your hands that one of the things I teach people is to sing happy birthday twice while you're cleaning your hands and get them really clean. And uh, I don't know if you've ever used that technique or not or if, you, if you've heard that. Well, I actually not only have heard it, but we've used it and we've promoted it. You know, what CDC says is you're supposed to spend about 20 seconds washing your hands. So that's like, you know, doing happy birthday twice. Excellent. So, so, so there's a lot of there, – that makes a lot of sense. But, of course, the trick is how do we really get people to do it? So. Yes, yes. I, it kills me when I walk, go into a bathroom and see people, you know, walk out without, uh, without even making an attempt. All right, Cliff? Would you agree that some environmental-related scaremongering is kind of going on in the industry? Uh, unfortunately, yes. And um, I... I find it really appalling, and I wish people wouldn't do it, and I wish companies wouldn't do it. Um, we have that problem in, in the cleaning industry. Uh, you know, I've spent literally my whole life in the chemical industry. My family actually owned a chemical manufacturing business. So, you know, I'm very proud to be in the chemical industry. We would never bash my industry and talk about all these toxic products, and we're killing people, and, you know, so forth and so on. And I think it's just a bad strategy. And forget about whether it's ethical or not. I think it's a bad business strategy. So um, it bothers me enormously. We try very hard to teach you know, our clients. And when we speak at events, we try very hard to make sure that we're not doing that kind of stuff. And the best thing for the marketplace to do is if companies are selling that way, just don't buy their products. Excellent. I mean, if we're unhappy with someone, the marketplace is very powerful, and the answer is simple. Just, you know, be an informed consumer and be smart about who you buy from. And um, there are some companies just don't buy their products, it's, and they would change their practices or they'd go out of business. And, frankly, that's okay, too, because that literally is how the marketplace works. That's it. Now, how do we find out about this, though? That's the other problem. I don't know that people are educated enough or, or have know what resources to use or where to go to find out which what products are greenwashing, what products are working well. Is there a labeling program that we should be looking for? Can you help us with that? Well, there, there's two answers to that, and I'm going to separate consumers between household consumers and commercial institutional consumers. So... You know, in the household space, it's really hard. 
because there is not a lot of information that's required for manufacturers pr to present. So I would really encourage it, you know, listeners to do a few things. One is, you know, reward companies, especially chemical companies, that provide full ingredient disclosure. Because that's the way to use the marketplace to encourage that practice, which will help us sort of figure these issues out. And I think that there's another couple of good resources. There's an organization called Terra Choice. It's uh, www.terra-choice.org, -R -R and they published the six, I guess now it's the seven sins of greenwashing, and they have lots of information about that issue, and I think consumers can find information there. And also Consumer Reports does a very good program on green purchasing. So I think for consumers, that's stuff they should do. And, of course, that old adage that if it sounds too good to be true, it probably is. So I think we just have to do the best we can. On the other hand, for commercial consumers, you know, professional purchasers, they should spend time actually doing their homework. Uh, please forgive me, but that's what they're paid to do. There's a lot of good eco-labeling programs out there, Green Seal, um, Terra Choice has the Environmental Choice Program, EPA's DFE Program, Design for the Environment Program. There's a lot of good programs out there. And if they're not sure which are the good ones, my recommendation always is, is to look at some of the existing roadmaps, such as the requirements in the U.S. Green Building Council's lead rating systems. Because, you know, people have done this homework before. They have identified the products and how to identify the, the green ones in them using different standards. And, you know, it's not as hard to identify this stuff, especially from a professional purchaser's perspective, than it used to be. Let's go one more question, Environmental Annie, and then we're going to go to our roundup, Steve. Yeah, I'm very curious, Steve. Um, we're, we're touching upon this topic in, uh, you know, uh, North America, but I'm curious, what's Europe doing? Are we looking at anything that they're doing? Or are we adopting anything? Is there anything we're ignoring? Well, that's a great question because this really is a global issue. You know, polluted air doesn't just stay at the, at the source, and the same thing with water and other problems. So we are certainly looking at what's going on in Europe, but I also think it's important to recognize that Europe is not homogeneous either. There are certainly some countries in Europe that I would say are ahead of the U.S., but I think that there are other countries in Europe, especially in Eastern Europe, that are vastly behind the U.S. So we're certainly trying to identify best practices wherever they are. And, of course, in some respects, the 800-pound gorilla or the elephant to the room or whatever saying we want to use is really what's going on in China and India. Because all the stuff that we're doing here, if we don't help them figure out and solve their problems and be a lot smarter about how they're building their industries, you know, all of our efforts may be for naught. Great point. Let's go to the roundup. Hang on, Steve.
Okay, let's go uh, around the horn here. One last question for everybody. We're going to start with uh, Dr. Dieter Wild. Dr. Dietrich, any questions well, or comments? Uh, two, two quick comments, and Stephen said that you know, perfectly. You know, when somebody puts some stuff into the air, pollutants, it unfortunately doesn't stay where it was generated. And we had this problem for quite some time in Pennsylvania when the coal-fired power plants in Ohio spit out a lot of sulfur dioxide, and um, uh, that, that came over to Pittsburgh <laughs> yep. uh, and, 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 and uh, western Pennsylvania. doesn't matter. And uh, Steve also, no, uh, Cliff uh, also touched on this, you know, not tested on animals. And I made the exact same comment last year, uh, last year, last week, uh, or two weeks ago, um, animal testing is very, very expensive on one hand. And on the other hand, if you have a product that has only natural ingredients, I don't know whether I would like to test that product on the lips or the eyebrows or on the skin of a 10-year-old. Uh, then she becomes, she or he becomes the, the guinea pig or the rat or the mouse. So we got to be careful with this. And I'm, I'm aware of the fact that there are many other toxicological indicators today which not necessarily mean that you have to kill or harm uh, or torture a mouse or a rat or a guinea pig. Thank you, Dr. Bader. Cliff? Steve, I've got a concern, and I'd be interested in whether you share it and possibly whether Dieter shares it as well. And what my concern is, is this, with this pressure for green technology, that it's going to result in the loss of more important and valuable uh, raw materials and technologies as happened in the past. I have to say that in some respect I share your concern. But, you know, the world that we live in today in some respects is different from what you know, the hundreds of generations have, that have come before us. Because we've finally gotten to the point where there are so many of us, what, there's 6.3 or 6.4 billion people on the planet expected to grow to 10 billion, you know, by 2050. And our rates of consumption and uh, um, the demand for natural resources to do all that stuff and the waste on and on and on, we're finally at the point where we have to make very hard choices that previous generations didn't have to make. And when we start thinking about things like petroleum, you know, it is an enormously valuable resource, but the fact of the matter is, is that it's limited. And so the challenge that we have is, how are we appropriately using these technologies, these resources, and is it really, you know, going to have a negative effect, even just in terms of availability for future generations? So we just got to get smart. And I don't know if there's right or wrong answers. We just need to start thinking about what our impacts are and just making better decisions. So in some cases, we may want to change technologies. We may, may want to do other things. And I just hope that we're smarter and more responsible than, frankly, generations before us have been. I think we've been ch childlike, just thinking that this stuff would always be there. It was our right to it. We can do anything we want with it, and nothing else mattered. But you know what? It really does matter, and it is going to have an effect on future generations. And when they look back at our, 
our time in history, I hope they don't say, man, these people were stupid, they were wasteful, they did irresponsible things, and now future generations are going to have to pay the price. I hope we'll be much smarter than that. Danny? Other than green cleaning products, what other green trends do you foresee on the horizon? Annie, are you specifically asking me about my industry or in other industries? Yours and any others. So I think, then let me answer it in two ways. Mm -hmm. One is I think the green building trend is a huge one. It's huge. It's going to have enormous impacts about how we, you know, build buildings and more importantly how we operate our existing ones. And it's an enormous economic driver and it affects the health of everyone because we're in those buildings. So I think that that trend is going to continue to accelerate. And for those listeners on the phone, I think it also creates enormous business opportunities for them to think about how their services or their products can really fit within the green building trend. One of the other things that I think is going to happen is there really is a difference between green and sustainable. And to me, one of the big differences is the whole issue of social equity. So I think as we go forward, we're going to start thinking about how what we do also affects people, and not just people's health, but their ability to do interesting things like put food on their table and have access to health care. So I think we're going to start seeing more green talking about you know, the social issues and employee issues and those in our organizations and who work for us to make sure that as a society, everything is being addressed. And I think that's going to become a big trend going into the future. Steve, I'll, I'll finish it up here. Um, first, I'd like to make a comment. Uh, I want to follow up on your uh, comments here and, and direct listeners to a fascinating website. If you get a chance, you should check out thestoryofstuff.com. Uh, it's a fascinating uh, website that uh, goes through the the process of how we take natural resources and how we develop them into products and uh, some of the waste along the way. The other thing I'd like to do and, and what we do with all of our listeners is ask if there's anything that um, we left out or anything that you'd like to add before we go. Well, uh, my final comment is I sincerely appreciate the opportunity to be on your show. Uh, you know, I sort of think of the cleaning industry as the Rodney Dangerfields of all industries. You know, his old comment that he can't get no respect. Yes, sir. And I think far too often people really demean our industry. They think it's not important. That's why in tough financial times it's so easy to cut cleaning because, I mean, shoot, any idiot could do it. And I really appreciate that you guys and gals, sorry, Annie, but with have me on the show and give me an opportunity to talk about some of these issues because they really do make important impacts on the indoor environment. Uh, air quality is just one of the issues. And, you know, so really my thanks to all of you. Well, we want to thank you. And also one thing before we go, can you tell the listeners uh, where your website is, how they can contact you? Well, thank you. I actually have two websites I'd like to refer them to. Uh, my consulting firm is... Uh, www.ashkingroup.com and my last name is spelled A-S-H-K-I-N so that's one and then the other is our nonprofit, the Green Cleaning Network which is www.greencleaningnetwork.org 
and that's a great resource for especially facility managers. Um, so those are two good ways to contact us, and hopefully we might be able to help all of you who have any interests or needs or questions about issues relating to green cleaning. All right. Well, this is Radio Joe Hughes saying thanks to this week's guest, Mr. Stephen Ashkin of the Ashkin Group, for joining us here this week. And uh, we really had a, a great interview, excellent time, and uh, learned a lot of new things. Before we go, I also want to thank my co-host, the Z-Man. Always a pleasure, Joe. Cliff Slotnick, the wingman at the controls, Chris Boizel, Environmental Annie for helping us out, of course, our technical director, Dr. Dietrich Wow. And I also want to let people know we've got a great show lined up for next week. Mr. Frank McKinney will be on here. We're going to talk a little more about green next week. Well, next week we will be going into uh, green construction and real estate issues. That's so right. There it is. We're uh, going green for April here this month. Uh, it will still be April, right? Uh, yeah, nope, sorry, yeah, May 1st. That's all right. Well, I want to uh, also thank the most important group out there. That's our growing group of loyal listeners. Thanks again. Join us again next Friday at noon for the next broadcast of IAQ Radio. This has been another IAQ Radio production. <laughs>